It's Behind the Headlines. I'm Joe Shaw. I am the executive editor of the Express News Group. Uh, this is the program on WLIWFM where we bring together award-winning community journalists from throughout the East End to do a little bit of a deeper dive into the week's headlines. My co-host is Bill Sutton, managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. And our panelists today are Denise Civiletti, who is the editor of Riverhead Local. Hey, Denise. Hey there, how are you? Good to have you. Uh, Beth Young, who's the editor of the East End Beacon. Hey, Beth. Hello, good morning. And our own Brendan O'Reilly, who's an editor with the Express News Group. Good morning, Brendan. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. So, Brendan, the big news this week was uh, that Governor Kathy Hochul, uh, sort of at the last minute, right, it was sort of right before the deadline, signed legislation that's been on the governor's desk for a couple of months now that allows the five East End towns to create uh, an affordable housing fund that is patterned on the community preservation fund that would add a half percent tax transfer tax to, to real estate transactions. This is something that uh, Assemblyman Fred Thiel has been working on for a very long time, right? It goes back quite a ways. I believe the first time he submitted a similar bill was in 2003. Hmm. He also submitted a bill in 2019, and that was nearly identical to the one that was just signed into law. There were a few tweaks, but the law in 2019, even though it passed the state assembly and the state Senate, it was vetoed by Governor Cuomo. And at the time, Assemblyman Thiel explained that Governor Cuomo was vetoing any bill that he perceived as adding a new tax. So in the ensuing two years after that interruption because of the pandemic, the idea was to explain to Governor Cuomo that it's not necessarily a new tax because even though you're adding a half a percent tax for community housing, you are also raising the exemptions for the community preservation fund. So the first $250,000 of the purchase price of a home on the South Fork or Shelter Island was exempt. Now it's going to be 400,000 in Riverhead and Southhold. It would go from 150,000 to 200,000. So if you're buying a house for less than a million dollars on the South Fork, this bill actually saves you money. If you're on the North Fork and you're buying a house for less than $400,000, this saves you money. But it yeah, actually he, does increase the price a little bit for over a million dollars, right? People at the higher end of the market are going to pay slight, slightly more. Yes, they'll be subject to an extra 0.5% on their real estate transaction. And the idea is to not raise the taxes on the houses that might be somewhat affordable while asking people who are buying the very expensive houses to pay just a little bit more. Now, the idea to convince Governor Cuomo of this went out the window when he resigned, and now they had Governor Kathy Hochul, who they had to convince. That was uh, it was easier to convince Governor Kathy Hochul than it was to ever convince Governor Cuomo. So even though they passed this a few months ago, the governor really has till the end of December to sign a bill. But the governor can also choose when the bill gets sent to her. It can it can get sent to her in July or September or October, November, December. Generally, when the governor requests bills be sent to her in December, she plans on vetoing them. At least that was the deal with Governor Cuomo. This bill was requested in October, which was a good sign. And she had about 10 days to sign it. She had until Saturday at midnight. Instead of doing it on Saturday, she did it on Friday and she signed it into law. So uh, the good signs turned out to be reliable. Now with this, uh, we're going to see uh, the town of Southampton 
which gets the most CPF, uh, CPF money in general, and now we'll have the most community housing fund money in general, looking at $15 million a year to spend on affordable housing initiatives. And the other towns will get less, but still significant contributions to affordable housing. That's, that's, all, deal. that's all dependent on, on, the, on right. the town coming up with a plan and then having a townwide referendum, right? I mean, I don't, I don't know that that this isn't going to pass, but it's still going to, there's still going to be some um, effort to, you know, to promote this and, you know, and have, have support from, from town residents, correct? Yeah. Correct. Similar to how the community preservation fund was set up, that the towns had to come up with plans for how that money would be used. They need to come up with community housing plans and Southampton town actually already started that process. I spoke with the East Ham town supervisor recently, and he said, now that the law has actually been signed, they're going to start that process too. So they need to come up with a plan that they could present to the public before they're even allowed to schedule a referendum. Hmm. What we're probably looking at is November 2022 referendums. Potentially they could happen earlier, but I imagine most of the towns are going to want to schedule this during the general election and not do it as at a special time. Yeah. So what, what basically happens now is each of the five towns uh, if they're interested in setting up a fund, they have to put these plans together. Then it would go before the voters in 2022. So, Brendan, would, would the money start to flow as soon as 2023? Is that when the first uh, batch of revenue from this new tax would start to come in? 2023, that's when they would start to get those receipts. And uh, they are paid when the houses when the home sales are recorded with a county. So a home sale might close in one month. Uh, it might be recorded with accounting almost immediately, but sometimes with very large transactions, it takes months before that sale is recorded with accounting and the taxes are paid. So that's why sometimes you see CPF revenue lags when home sales were very high because they have until the uh, the recording takes place with the county. What I'm intrigued by w with this, I, I don't think any of us is going to argue um, that this isn't probably the biggest the biggest issue right now um, on the South Fork. We had uh, an express sessions event on Thursday, and we spoke with some folks from some different parts of the sector, uh, the economic sectors, uh, Bob Challoner from the hospital, uh, Adam Fine from East Hampton School District, which is actually having an affordable housing seminar next week uh, just to try and help um, find houses for families in his district. Uh, John Tortorella from the pool company and uh, Mark Smith, who's a restaurateur. And, and you know, the difficulty, the, the topic was the difficulty in hiring employees, but it all came back to housing. It always comes back to housing. Beth, it, you know, what Absolutely. I'm intrigued, what I'm intrigued by, Beth, is that this this measure, while it's a, a absolutely needed and probably long overdue, runs kind of 180 degrees from the Community Preservation Fund, which the whole point of the Community Preservation Fund was to limit development. Yeah. And this will actually encourage some more development. Um, at least that's one of the things it could do, right? Yeah. And um, one of the things I'm, I'm really curious to see what the vote is going to be on the referendum, because it's not as easy a sell as the Community Preservation Fund was. Um, Do you think uh, that? Because I, I wonder, uh, the only thing is, I feel like affordable housing is an issue that's touched virtually everybody who lives here. Whereas I think even in, in 1998, 
the idea of community preservation through environmental protection was a little esoteric. I think everybody right. bought into it. It wasn't a hard sell, but, but I it's, still like a, it's still a, it's still a tax. I, I, I mean, I think that's how yeah. a lot of people saw the CPF back then. And and if um, if our if our local lawmakers aren't careful, that's the way some people may frame this as well moving forward. Um, you know, maybe more in some towns than in others. Yeah, I, I, I think you'll, there are some towns. I mean, it might be easier an easier sell on the South Fork. Although the North Fork is having trouble with housing and finding finding housing for people who work here as well. It's really just mimicking what you guys are have been dealing with for years. Uh, the tax on the seller, like like the um, preservation tax, correct? It's yes, yes. yes. It would be it's, on the it's, buyer. Buyer. This one's on I'm the sorry, buyer. I'm sorry, it is the buyer, yeah, okay. but it follows the community CPF preservation is. fund. Okay. Because I was going to say, if you're taxing the seller and they're leaving, do they care about if people <laughs> live here? I, you know, yeah. um, right. I mean, that's an issue. I, I think the question is have we reached critical mass with uh, people realizing what a crisis this is? Because, heck, we've been talking about this for 20 years, right? I mean, at least yeah. Yeah. Um, the lack of affordable housing, and it's just getting worse and worse and worse. And what happened in the past year has really exacerbated an already terrible problem. So, um, you know, I was struck, but, I was struck and talking to some of the employers by the number of jobs that are going unfilled um, because people simply can't afford to, to, to live in the community at the wages that are being paid, even though the, the, the businesses know, and they're trying to, to boost those wages but there's a, you know, there's a limit to that as well. And, and, you know, it's having a real effect on our economy. And it also, we feel it in traffic, we feel it in pollution, we feel it in other ways. Absolutely. I, I think the number that struck me, Joe, from, from the sessions um, on Thursday, Bob Challoner from the hospital was saying that they have 150 open positions right now at the hospital. And he noted that I, I, I forget the number, but it was over 90 percent of hospital employees currently live west of the canal and probably even points um, you know, further west out of, out of Southampton. Um, and, and even that being the case, they just can't get people to to apply for the positions. They don't want to commute and they can't live out here. And I thought Adam Fine made a great point, too, that that uh, the school districts east of the canal end up hiring teachers a lot of times who are commuting from west of the canal who stay for a year or two and then get jobs in other districts that are closer to where they live. And, and so they, if they, they if, if they even apply for the jobs, he was he was saying that, I mean, he talks to to other school districts and if they have an open teaching position, they'll get, you know, maybe a couple hundred resumes, um, you know, for for the for the teaching position or applications. And in East Hampton, maybe that number was typically around 50. And he's saying lately it can be as low as, as you know, a handful of applications for an open position because nobody can nobody can live out here. And this is a problem that that we're seeing in pretty much every sector of the local economy. Brendan, I wanna I wanna talk about something specific with this proposal to generate more money for affordable housing. This is not necessarily going to mean that the money is going to be used to build big apartment complexes and things like that, right? There's various ways this money can be used. 
Something that I found interesting in talking with uh, Southampton Supervisor Jay Schneiderman, Peter Vanskoyk of Easthampton, and Curtis Highsmith of the Southampton Housing Authority is this bill can mean less density, which seems backwards, but it's true. Because up until this point, whenever we built affordable housing on the East End, they would have to achieve a certain level of density uh, in order to make the numbers work. So if you're going to rent apartments for $1,200 a month, you need to build those apartments on the cheap. And the way to build on the cheap is to increase the density. However, if you can pour $2 million of community housing fund money onto that project, instead of doing 40 units, maybe you could get it down to 35 units, maybe you could get it down to 30 units. So now you're adding less density to that community and that you could also spread out affordable housing projects that way. Instead of saying, we're gonna build one 60 unit community here, we're gonna build two 30 unit communities here and here. And it's because by underwriting the project with community housing fund money, you could actually build less, but still be affordable to the person who's going to rent or buy there. There are so many challenges to building affordable housing on the East End, but money was a big part of that, right? I mean, and I think money was was sort of the the stumbling block in almost every case. So now, uh, in in many instances, this very well could remove that stumbling block. Denise, how's that going to affect a town like Riverhead, uh, where you know you you've got, had a building boom a little bit in downtown Riverhead? And there is some affordable housing going in, but I think I think this is a region wide problem, right? It absolutely is, and I ha- I have a couple of observations about that. I mean, for this to work uh, outside of uh, let's say an area that's already kind of low income, like uh, Riverhead downtown in particular, um, you know, elected officials are really going to have to knuckle down and do it. I mean, you know, whether you're, it's thirty five units or twenty five units, depending on where it's put. Um, local residents don't want things like that in their backyard. I'm, I'm, I'm all in favor of building affordable housing. And, and I think you certainly need, the towns certainly need to do that. I'm also intrigued, and I've talked about this before, I'm in, intrigued about the idea of using some of these funds um, to offset down payments um, on, on homes, um, whether it's first time home buyers or, or maybe, you know, maybe any, any, you know, home buyer to, to, to bring the, the cost of buying a house down. And I think you have to have both elements. I think you don't want to create a class system here where you're, you're, you know, only, only supporting people who are buying homes. You, you we certainly need the, uh, the, the lower income renters and, and all that too. But I, I like that idea of the, you know, of, of, paying the down payments or a big portion of down payments. And then, then you keep those homes, that money can come back to the fund if people sell the house and you keep those homes, you know, affordable in perpetuity, I guess. Right. Yeah, it, it, sorry, uh, I was going to say there's some first time homebuyer programs where you get a lump sum of money. And if you stay at that house for 10 years, it's forgiven, which is good for the person that bought that house. And it helps them gener- generationally because now they own a piece of property and your property's your biggest asset for 99% <clears throat> of people. And it's how you give wealth to your children. And it really helps lift people up. Uh, and because of how unaffordable houses are here, first-time homebuyer grants aren't ten or twenty thousand dollars. You're looking at probably 
$200,000. But instead of a grant, they will buy a lien against that property that says, if this house is ever sold, the town gets $200,000 back. And then that goes back into the fund for the next affordable housing project. The other thing that they could do though, is if the person who owns the house sells it to another income qualified person who is eligible for affordable housing, then they don't need to go through the process of kicking the money back to the town and the town using it someplace else. It just gets rolled over to the next home buyer. Stays with the house. Yeah. So, you know, I had a conversation with uh, Assemblyman Fred Thiel about this, and I, I think it's a real opportunity to do some innovative things where, as you said, I think one of the things with affordable housing over the years that's been a bit of an issue is A person who takes advantage of the affordable housing program for a purchase doesn't necessarily get the full benefit of, you know, part of buying a house is building wealth. But if there are limits on what you can sell that house for because it's an affordable housing unit, um, it can limit the amount of money that person is able to make over time, especially in the market out here. This has a chance to set up a whole new program. uh, And you've sort of touched on it that... um, you owe the town. Maybe the town's grant becomes your down payment, which which makes it easier to to go get a mortgage. And then when you do sell that house, maybe you sell it for twenty percent more than you you bought it for. But that two hundred thousand dollars goes back into this affordable housing program, and it can be used throughout the 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 towns. Then you don't have little pockets of areas that are just being designated as affordable housing. Beth, you you started to say something earlier. I wanted to give you a chance. Yeah, um, I think, hang on one second. Uh, it, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I lost your thought, that's okay. <laughs> no, um, uh, the, uh, the, um, the uh, legitimizing accessory apartments, I think is, is really going to be helpful because there's so many people living in, in garages and makeshift spaces that that um, you know, if they weren't seen as secret uh, or illegal rentals, that you know it would be healthier for the people living in them. And you know, there's that that's using the existing housing stock, and and there's so much innovative work that can be done on that side of it too. Absolutely, that's a good. Point. Not, a, not not my back or not. Yeah, you're you are back. Okay, you're back. I don't know what happened. I relaunched and we'll see what happens. Um, <laughs> so I don't know what I missed also. <laughs> but um, I what I was trying to say before was that, you know, there's going to be opposition in communities where these where projects are, uh, especially larger projects than what you're used to in these other communities. Um, there's going to be opposition. That's going to be hard to get make it happen. It's going to take fortitude on the part of the elected officials. Um, and then the other thing is there are other stumbling blocks that we've seen here because, you know, things that are affordable are affordable according to um, a scale that takes into that uh, t- takes into account the adjusted median income for Long Island for Nassau Suffolk. And so that when you have like 60 percent or 80 percent of the AMI for this region, you're looking at still rents that are pretty high. And I mean, yeah. you know, like a, a small one bedroom apartment in the five story building on that everybody seems to love to hate on um, McDermott and East Main Street um, is $1,900. And it's a small apartment. And I know that because my daughter lives in it. Um, and that's without utilities. So <clears throat> how affordable is that really? I mean, it's well, better than $2,500, but it's still maybe out of reach for the people who are earning the kind of 
uh, wages that employers can pay in this market. Um, so, so maybe just, the, maybe this new maybe this new fund can can offset the rents a little bit too. I mean, there's, 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 the, the nice thing that. is there's really, there's no limit as to what the town can do with this money. The towns can do with the money as long as they set up programs. And I, I think it would be wise if the towns, instead of putting all the money in, in one basket, um, looks at all these, all these different opportunities. So there may be, there's, rent, there's rental assistance, there's down payment assistance, there's constructing, you know, new, new units that we were talking about. You've got to go across the board. And I think that was my point earlier is you've, you've got to make sure that, that you're addressing affordable housing for everybody on all different levels from, you know, from the, from the minimum wage workers who need to live out here to, you know, to, to the teachers and, and the hospital workers and the doctors that, that can't afford to live out here. It's got to go across the board. Yeah. That really struck me too, is uh, Bob Challoner saying that even doctors are struggling to be able to afford houses uh, and there, and that becomes a difficulty in uh, recruiting doctors to come to Stony Brook, Southampton. Hospital. Sure. Well, so, a, a new doctor out of school is going to make the same as they at Stony Brook, Southampton as they would at a, at a hospital in, in Nebraska where, where the, you know, where they can buy a house for, you know, for $80,000 as, as opposed to a million dollars out here. I mean, where, where would you choose to go? So this is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. Uh, I'm Joe Shaw from the Express News Group. Bill Sutton is my co-host. He's also from the Express News Group. And our panelists today are Denise Civiletti from Riverhead Local, uh, Beth Young of the East End Beacon, and Brendan O'Reilly, also from our Express News Group. Uh, and we're talking about the new uh, community housing fund legislation that was signed by the governor. And Brendan, I, you know, I'm curious, you know, as I said, we had an Express Sessions event this week. Uh, on Thursday, and video of that should be going up on our website at 27east.com uh, soon. Uh, and I thought it was a really fascinating conversation with with all different parts of of the uh, of the economy out here, talking about how affordable housing is impacting them. But I'm curious that one of the things Bill said is we need different levels, and we need to look at uh, the problem of affordable housing in a variety of ways. Uh, low income, but also middle income, and even to some degree, when we're talking about things like doctors and being able to supplement uh, their housing costs to try and get recruitment out here. I'm curious for you. One of the one of the things uh, that came out in a story we wrote recently, um, David Hirsch, who's a restaurant where he owns Cowfish and uh, and Rumba in Hampton Bays and Flora in West Hampton Beach, and he suggested that it's time for the towns to start changing zoning codes to allow restaurants to provide dormitory style housing of sorts. Do you think that's something that has any wheels whatsoever? Is Are any of the towns, I'd certainly East Hampton or South Hampton, do you think that's something they would even entertain? I think dormitory style housing for summer help is feasible. I think trying to put year-round workers into dormitory style housing is uh, maybe a bit uh, abusive towards those workers. But if you have the septic in place and the restaurants have the room, some of these restaurants have uh, offices upstairs and those offices can be moved other places. Sure, convert them to apartments. West Hampton Beach where Flora is, has a, a new sewage district going in. So that's a potential there, but most restaurants are already maxing out their septic capacity as it is. 
And if they do get sewers put in, they're going to use a lot of that to add to their seating capacity so they could have more customers. But if they also have the ability to pop some dorm rooms in or bedrooms on the second or third floors of their buildings, that is a solution. If businesses provide their own housing for their own businesses, that's going to benefit everyone. You're not having a business come in, expand, and then take away a bedroom that was belonged to an employee for some other business who now gets displaced. You want businesses as they add employees to add housing for those employees. Otherwise, we're never going to be able to house anyone. We see in Sag Harbor that the Sag Harbor Cinema just bought employee housing, which is a great thing. And it helps Sag Harbor Cinema. And they can offer those rooms for affordable rates or next to nothing for the people that are working for them. But at the same time, they just bought a place where people were living. And now those people who are living there have to find someplace else to live. And it wasn't cheap, right? Not cheap at all. There was several million dollars that they paid for the house that has some uh, a handful of apartments in it that they're going to use for staffing. But that may be the the wave of the future. Um, You know, it's interesting too, Denise. um, Brendan brought it up. This all comes back to the issue of sewers, right? Uh, If if we if if these communities don't have sewers. Uh, it doesn't matter how much money you have to, to build affordable housing. You won't be able to do it. I mean, there might be a, a certain number of homes that can be built with the, uh, you know, if the county approves the in the new septic systems for commercial use and they get those standards together, there might be enough, uh, you know, you could build a certain amount. But any kind of like mass scale, like what we've seen in Riverhead or what they've proposed in Riverside, in Southampton Town, you have to have a sewage treatment plant for sure. Um, I, you know, the river, Riverhead uh, is in the process of, or just started really doing a comprehensive plant update. And the consultants that they hired uh, recently completed an affordable housing stock analysis for Riverhead Town. And what they came up with, where they did an inventory, um, there are 2,334 known or designated affordable rental units in the town of Riverhead. And um, there are also, and that includes, I think, um, that doesn't include mobile home units that are owned, uh, but 2334, 2538, including some that are in the proposed stage that aren't that haven't been approved yet. Um, and if you go by the 30% or less of pre-tax income spent on housing costs, all 3,133 rental units in the town are considered affordable by that mm-hmm. benchmark. So. You know, clearly, um, this community is the affordable housing capital of uh, of the East End for sure. And um, but again, you know, some of those rents are still pretty high for pe- for real people in the real world. Um, so, as Bill pointed out, that's that's an important thing. Again, sewage that's expensive. Wastewater treatment plants are tens of millions of dollars to build. Um, Interesting though. You see the development right now in downtown Riverhead is because that's where Riverhead has, has a, you know, the, the sewers. Yeah. I mean, and it's important to point out that the CPF now has uh, that component that allows for water quality, which right. can be used for sewage systems. And, and which if we West, see a federal, if which we West see Hampton federal, Beach utilized um, to install their new, their new sewer project is, is they used, they, they termed it water protection, um, you know, um, for, for the canal in, in West Hampton Beach and, and it paid, paid for a large portion of that project. 
And then there's potentially federal infrastructure money coming down the pike too, which uh, I think a, a lot of the communities, I know Southampton Village uh, seems like they are optimistic that there's going to be some money flowing. Brendan, they've been talking about that and, and they, they are close to having a sewer plan, I believe, in Southampton Village, right? They're working on it. And I think they're optimistic that some money's coming to help with that. We should see a sewer plan for Southampton Village by the end of the first quarter of 2022. There are many places to to uh, hold your hand out and ask for money when it comes to sewage because so many levels of government know how important it is. So there's potentially CPF money because up to 20% of CPF revenue can be used on water quality. There's also county grants. A lot of those county grants are being funded through the state. You could go direct to the state to ask for grants. Um, there's there's an alphabet soup, and I don't even want to try to recite uh, the acronyms for some of these uh, programs that are out there, but the sewage treatment plant could be underwritten quite significantly through grants because in the past few years, uh, New York State and the municipalities within have really caught on to the importance of water quality. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. I think it's interesting how it all kind of ties together. Like I said, sewers, um, environment, traffic, how, but it all comes back to housing and this measure that was signed by the governor uh, this past week um, is really a big step and uh, we'll see what happens. I think it's now the ball is really in the town's court to uh, put together plans that make sense. And then they're going to have to go out and I, I think then it's going to fall to voters. Yeah. And, and I mean, voters are going to have to be convinced and, and we all know nothing is ever certain. Anything that's been connected to uh, the community preservation fund, has always had a fairly easy time being approved. And uh, we'll, we shall see if this happens as well with the affordable housing measure, which is patterned on it. That'll be an interesting couple of years moving forward. Uh, this is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group, as is our panelist, Brendan O'Reilly. Uh, we also have Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local and Beth Young of the East End Beacon. So let's move. Uh, Denise, I want to talk about, you know, one of the things we are always complaining about uh, this is called Behind the Headlines, and it's, you know, journalists talking to journalists. So one of the things we always complain about privately is when we get stonewalled uh, by officials. And you had an incident this past week, and you wrote about it. Tell us tell us a little bit. Give, give the public a little taste of what we face on uh, an occasional basis. So, uh, yeah, well, it's, sometimes it feels like it's more than occasional, Joe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, it, it'd be tolerable if it was just occasional. But um, so... Uh, I actually spelled it out in an editorial I wrote and published uh, last night, an opinion column of what went on behind the scenes in the past couple of weeks when uh, beginning with like rumors flying about one particular official who's like the head of the of finances and the business office. And um, there were just all kinds of rumors that he was leaving. He was being terminated. He was this, he was that. And like every single day I got phone calls, text messages. It was you know, kind of driving me a little crazy knowing that I couldn't, there's no way I'm going to find out about that, right? It's That's a legit personnel, particular person matter, exempt from, you know, the open meetings law and protected by privacy laws, et cetera. Um, but sooner or later, you know, they had to take some action and they had two special executive session only uh, special board meetings of the Riverhead uh, School Board. And, um, 
at the end of all of that, which also like, you know, made people even crazier. Um, but at the end of all of that, at the meeting on Tuesday, um, they um, acted without any explanation to change this individual's title and responsibilities. They abolished the position that he held of deputy superintendent. And um, he reverted back to assistant superintendent and he got instant tenure in that position. Huh. Uh, and um, that apparently was a, a provision we had checked in his contract of employment. Um, and he keeps the same, uh, while his responsibilities changed, he keeps the same salary. And um, then they, and this is for me the trouble, the troubling part, but they appointed an acting business official. That was the title that this person has, acting business official. Now, the way I read that, if it's acting, that implies there is a position called business official, right? And it's vacant. So they named someone to it in an acting capacity. There was no such, such position that we know of. Um, and um, so they appointed this person as an acting business official and um, at a rate of $125 an hour. And we could not get any straight answers to those very direct questions. Did this position exist? When was it created? What's it going to cost? Did you? What, were, your, what, are, what are the responsibilities? Where? What are the? Where? Where is the budget? What's the funding for this in the annual budget? Where is it coming from? Is there a change in the budget? This this action, I say, is was clearly not a quote personnel matter, but. Uh, a, a budget matter. You can't, you know, I had this conversation years ago with uh, Bob Freeman and, you know, from the uh, New York State Committee on Open Government. And you, um, you know, the creation of a position, any budget decision, things like that, those are not exempt from the open meetings law. Um, but they would not, and when I say they, let me just be clear. I, I, we, we tried the president of the school board and the um, new uh, uh, the new superintendent who just took the job and he started in July. So, I mean, we got not, you know, the drill, you get a, an answer, you know, they write to you or by email, they won't, you know, they won't get on the phone. They send you a non-responsive answer. They send you a link to a statement that's equally non-responsive. Then all of a sudden you get an email from the PR firm that the district has and that is also completely non-responsive and sends you the same link to some statement that was posted on the web. So we were, I mean, you know, blood pressures were running high around our office this week because it, it's just a lot of nonsense, really. And the people deserve to know what's happening with their tax dollars, bottom line. Like, I, you know, it's inexcusable to me. So, Beth, you've covered a lot of school boards and, and we've dealt with school boards over the years. And mm -hmm. While I've got to say out loud before we start that, you know, I give tip my hat to anybody who serves on a school board because it's a thankless position and, and uh, they end up in that job. But but I think what we run into a lot of times with school boards in particular, as Denise said, this is I mean, this is what most of your tax bill is going towards your property tax bill. This is a significant amount of money that's being spent at the schools. And you have citizens who are serving on school boards who oftentimes really aren't comfortable with uh, the law and and what what they can say out loud. And there's a lot of fear all the time about getting sued. Right. It's it's a it's a challenge to report on school boards. Yeah. I mean, they're they're unpaid. Um, they, they do have training. Um, some of them take to it a lot more uh, a lot more vigorously than others. Um, 
<laughs> but yeah, when they start, they usually don't have a clue. It takes a lot of time to get them up to speed. And of course, then the elections happen. You have new school board members and you start the process all over again. Um, but their their understanding of open meetings lies is generally difficult. Um, uh, yeah. can, I also, can I also say one more thing about that? I mean, you know, we had the president of our school board was for 10, 15 years or more, a um, self-appointed like watchdog and um, railed at the school board for doing things like this while she was on the other side of the podium, you know? And since she's been elected to the school board, now she's president of the school board, she is exactly the person that she was yelling at, you know? <laughs> and um, I know she's not gonna like this. I said this kind of in the column, but it's like, it's almost like they join a cult, you know? <laughs> I mean, like they don't talk, they don't, you know, they don't even let, I mean, it, it's just crazy. They cut somebody off, they cut the mic. If someone mentions uh, in a critical way, an employee's name, yeah. like, you know, they don't want to, they won't talk about personnel, but the public's not allowed to say anything either. And I don't know that that's legal. I mean, right. it's a lot of crazy stuff. I mean, uh, years ago, I brought, brought Bob Freeman down to Riverhead to give a seminar on this stuff because of what the Riverhead School Board was was doing. And, and But it just continues. And, you know, I don't know. Anyway, but all we can do is shed light, right? And hope that people insist on, you know, change and light bulbs go off on the for people. And <laughs> Brendan, this is, this takes up a lot of our bandwidth, right? I mean, we're fighting these battles all the time uh, with uh, villages, towns, police departments, school boards. Uh, and, and I think it's one of those things that, that local journalists do that uh, people, uh, readers out there and, and citizens out there, I'm, I'm not sure they completely understand why we do this. Well, the, one of the issues with enforcing open meetings law is you're talking about executive sessions or conversations that these people should have had in public that they had in private and there's a violation that exists okay prove it there's no record of what happened during that executive session that you are able to access there's no record of what was said in a phone conference conversation between all five board members who met to have a phone call even though they are only allowed to assemble and have a meeting in public view. So what are you supposed to do about it? There's things like they didn't give adequate public notice and they passed a law. That's something you could actually enforce. And generally some opponent of that law will run in with a lawyer and take care of that. But for journalists to say, well, I think that you discuss things in the executive session at this school board meeting that absolutely should have been discussed in public. Okay. Prove it. I was actually speaking with a, a village official recently who said the same thing, that they would routinely go into executive session for things and conversations would start up and you look around the room and say, hey, we should be having this conversation in public. This is not a matter that is subject to executive session. This isn't like a personnel matter. This isn't litigation. This isn't something that has to be discussed behind closed doors. So if we want to have this conversation, let's go have it in public. Let's have it at our next meeting or let's end the executive session and go back into public session because what you're doing right now is inappropriate. Unless that board member complains publicly that executive session is being violated, there's really no way for the public to know or for the press to know that it's being done. 
And there are some yeah. instances where like they come out, if, if, the, if somebody makes enough of a stink about it and they come out of executive session, nobody from the public is there anymore because they've gone into executive session. So they could have it in public, but if the public's not aware of it, that they've come back out again. There's a lot of games played. Yeah. And, and I, yeah. you know, anybody who's out there listening, if you're not familiar with the state's open meetings law and some of what we're talking about, it's worth making yourself more aware of it because um, it's important protections for the public. And it's not just for journalists. Journalists are the representatives of the public and we're sort of the ones on the front lines fighting these battles. But this is about public access uh, to information and it happens all the time. And and honestly, I'll, I'll go so far as to say, I don't know that it's always um, done out of malice. I think a lot of times uh, you're, you're talking about people who don't really understand the law yeah, sometimes you, you, I get the sense it's done out of malice because no, sometimes it's there, well, there's the law and there's the bare minimum. And the worst is the people who know what the bare minimum is, because I, I went to one of the first public meetings that was happening after the covid more. Um, go, remember, Governor Cuomo made an order that said that uh, open meetings law was suspended. So you still have to have meetings in public, but you could do them over Zoom. You could do them over YouTube. You don't have to have them in person. So we go back to in-person meetings, work sessions this whole time had been recorded. We go back to public meetings and there's somebody there sitting there ready to record. And the chairman says, well, if we don't have to record, we're not going to. If we don't have to broadcast this meeting, we're not going to. We're not required to, we're not going to. So you could play that game of saying, well, I know that better public access and good governance would be to broadcast this meeting because we're in a pandemic and people should be able to view this. but." Hey, I know the law and the law says I don't have to, so I'm not gonna. That seems like malice to me. I still remember a school. Oh, go ahead, Denise. I was just going to say a fatal flaw in this law, as wonderful as it might be, or however many holes it's got in it, it, there's no one to enforce it. Right. It has to be brought by a private citizen's lawsuit. And, you know, even we've spoke about this in the past, but like, you know, even we don't individually, our companies don't have the resources to spend that kind of time and money in court. I mean, and yeah. I, I mean, a tell that they've had conversations in executive session that they should not have is that they they vote on things without any discussion at all and things mm-hmm. that are clearly not personnel or litigation. I mean, and when you see votes like that taking place and there's no discussion on the board, you know that they've you know had this conversation in private. Um, I, I once this happened years ago and. I, I asked the then president of the school board, do you discuss these things before you come out and vote on them? Or are you just voting blindly? And she said, oh, of course we do. We, we discuss them in executive session. And I said, well, that's against the law. And she said, well, we don't want to look stupid. And Bob, Bob Freeman said to me, and I quoted him, uh, well, sorry, looking stupid is not an exempt, you know, fear of looking stupid is not an exemption to the open meetings law. So, right. you know, and that's but, that's the problem. You need to have buy in from the school board members, too. And sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. I, I still remember a school board member who told me one time I, I was aware of a conversation that took place about a staff member um, in executive session or it was actually about another board member, a conversation that happened. And I asked the president. um what was that conversation? Why was it executive session? And he said, for litigation reasons. And I said, how is that possible? And he said, because if we'd have said that in open meeting, we'd have gotten sued. 
how they work that way. I said, yeah, that's not how the law works, but it's but it just goes to show. I think there's a lot of misinterpretation. Well, we we will we will keep up the good fight as as journalists covering these boards and try to hold their feet to the fire where we can. Right. And a little little secret, I think. It's part of it's one of the fun things of the job, too, is is to because you're fighting the good fight and it's nice. to know you're fun, fun and frustrating. Fun and frustrating, definitely. I don't think it's fun. (laughs) (laughs) Denise doesn't have fun this week. She doesn't have fun this week. This is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists today, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, Beth Young of the East End Beacon, and Brendan O'Reilly of the Express News Group. And uh, Beth, let's talk deer. Uh, There is bad news. (laughs) Yes, there's bad news in the deer community, right? The deer deer newspapers. This is is big news in the deer newspapers, right? (laughs) Yeah, well, I guess the, the last time I was on about a month ago, there was talk about this new this uh, deer disease that had only been upstate that was uh, coming to, to Long Island. These deer die a, a terrible death after being bit by no seams. Apparently, this does not have any impact on humans. If you eat the deer meat, it doesn't impact you. Um, but it's but a it's hemorrhag- a but it's a hemorrhagic disease, right? Hemorrhagic it's a terrible, disease. Yeah. terrible disease for the deer. So in the past week, it's been found in Southold and um, Southampton as well. So uh, the last we'd heard was in Suffolk County. Now it's definitely out here on the East End. Um, and uh, the uh, the government officials up here are asking uh, members of the public to document any deer that they see if they're out walking around dead, in the woods. Dead deer or, or <laughs> dying yeah. deer, right? Dead or dying deer, yeah. Um, uh, but um, apparently this will end when the noceums uh, die or whatever happens to them with the first hard frost. Um, I'm sure everybody knows what noceums are, but those are the tiny gnats, the really small gnats. Um, thus the name. On the beach at sunset. You got to say noceums slower. It's noceums, right? I mean, yes. it's not... No it sounds like some Latin name for a bug, but no, it's no seams. <laughs> yeah, I, it's one of my favorite East Endisms. I really enjoy that <laughs> word a lot. Um, so, Brendan, this you know, we've talked over the years about trying to control the, the deer population on the East End. This might help with that, right? I mean, you know, a disease like this can, can uh, you know, there have been a lot of active measures. I mean, I, East Hampton village and town have both done so i remember the the effort to sterilize deer where they were actually doing operations in the field which i found fascinating um this this may actually be welcomed by a lot of people who feel like the deer population's out of control and those deer sterilizations didn't even work right this disease is doing hundreds of thousands if not millions of dollars worth of work for us If you just look historically at what the different villages and towns have paid between spaying deer out in the wild and hiring sharpshooters to take out deer in a manner that's safer than your average hunter, I guess there, you know, people were getting paid like a thousand dollars a deer, or even it was just a couple hundred dollars a deer. It adds up very quickly, even though there's hunters out there who would do it for free. So when you have a population that gets very dense it is that much easier for disease to spread. Hmm. 
where have we heard this before? Has this been on the news in the past two years at some point? So yes, the noceums are spreading it, but the fact that there's so many deer per square mile on the East End means that this disease is going to travel quickly. And it probably will stop when the hard frost kills all the noceums. And then in the spring, the noceums come out again. They're still carrying the virus. They will kill more deer. So generally what we see is that uh, some animals have an innate resistance or some animals are uh, just physically stronger than others and they'll survive it. So what we could see is that after a few years, um, after the population's been reduced somewhat, the deer that are left are the most resilient deer, the deer with the most resistance to this hemorrhagic disease. And then you have a deer population that can better withstand uh, an epizootic hemorrhagic disease pandemic that's real herd immunity (laughs) that is herd immunity that's where the term comes from (laughs) and then then the problem worsens again and we're we're back to spaying and shooting bill we had we had reports this week of a lot of deer right i mean anecdotally at least there were there were large numbers of deer that were found well i i think there there were some rumors and speculation I, i think what the dec told us is they had seven seven suspected cases in in southampton town i know uh beth was saying there were there were more or a lot more in in orient um it, the dc has to you know test test the deer to come up with a conclusion or, or whatever but yeah it's looking like it's pretty pretty prevalent here um there in suffolk county i'm, I'm looking at it now in suffolk county there were 82 suspected cases um, and compare that to, you know, to upstate counties, um, you know, where they're having, you know, 500 cases in one county, another county had, you know, 1150. So it's not, it's not a huge number, but it's certainly, it's certainly present. And, you know, and I, I don't, I, I know that it's going to help control the population, but I don't think we want to make light of it either. This looks like a really horrific disease for the deer. It doesn't kill them quickly or or, or nicely. So, I mean, um, yeah, it's a I don't, terrible I don't, way to die. Yeah, I don't think we want to celebrate it that much. No, and and I, you know, clearly, it's it's also, um, I think Brendan touched on. It's a sign of imbalance, and when you have disease that sweeps through a population, it's it's that they're more susceptible to to disease under those circumstances. So it, it suggests that something is not healthy in the community in general. You know, real briefly, Bill, before we we run out of time, uh, another animal made an appearance in our pages this week. Uh, and it was something a little smaller than deer, but uh, just as populous, right? Yes, was, was uh, your, your famous headline this week, a kerfluffle. Um, yeah. So, so apparently, well, Kitty, Kitty Merrill, I, I did not know that a kerfluffle is what you call a group of, of, of bunnies. I did not know that. Well, it's a fluffle. A, oh, it's a fluffle. That's right. A group yeah, of yeah. bunnies is a fluffle. So, yes. so as, as the story goes over, you know, during, during the early parts of the pandemic, um, as people were stuck in their houses um, and wanted pets, um, people were buying bunnies um, like they were rabbits. Um, you know, and keeping <laughs> keeping them in their houses, and now that uh, that that restrictions are easing and all that, apparently, people have decided to um, release the uh, the bunnies into the wild, um, as it were. These are domesticated animals that have no business being out in the wild. So there's been a big draw on all the uh, different animal 
animal shelters and animal rights groups to uh, to go. There was a uh, go pick up these uh, these bunnies and put them in the shelters and put them up for they spay and neuter them and then put them um, you know up for adoption. There were a bunch in Southampton, Hampton Bays. There were um, there was a bunch in, in Calverton too which we reported on anecdotally. And, you know, the big message here is if you've got animals that you can no longer care for, don't just set them free, obviously, um, you know, give them to the, uh, to the animal shelters. Shelters are, uh, I, I guess there's waiting lists at the shelters right now, but the shelters will eventually take your, take your bunnies um, and take care of them and find them uh, good homes. And it's I know really Really, in, it, it's inappropriate to release a domesticated rabbit into the wild. Those are prey animals, and well, well I understand. They, the, I understand the thinking. If you if you see, because there's so many wild uh, rabbits around, and I know Beth was noting that that the number of wild rabbits is, is, seems to increase too. But you're a homeowner. You see, you know, you see all these brown rabbits jumping around in in your neighborhood. You you think it's it's the thing to do, but it's certainly. Um, it's certainly not. They're not bred for you know to be wild. They don't know what they're doing when they go out and out there. I had an encounter with domesticated rabbits that had been set free. I was in Bayport a couple of months ago, and we're cleaning up outside of this house, and I see this white rabbit come up on one day, and I'm like, "Well, that's odd. Uh, maybe it's somebody's pet. Maybe it's going to go home. Maybe it got lost, and I couldn't really get close enough to catch it." The next day, the rabbit comes back, and it has a black rabbit with it, uh-uh. and they are clearly not wild rabbits. Wild rabbits are smaller, they're brown, they're cottontails. They they literally have white tails and brown bodies. These domesticated rabbits were clearly intended to be pets. So on the second day of having them come up to me, I called animal control and they ran around with nets and they cornered them and they caught them both. And they said it's unlikely that they got out of somebody's yard or out of somebody's house. More likely a breeder could not sell them by Easter and let them out. Mm. And they were not going to survive. They certainly want to survive the winter, but by this animal control specialist's estimation, they would have died sooner because a bright white rabbit is very susceptible to predators. Right. He said Absolutely. the black Yeah, he said the black rabbit might last longer because it's harder to see, but dogs or uh some wild animal is going to get them sooner rather than later. Yeah, be a responsible pet owner, no question. Yeah. We are we are out of time wow. for Behind the Headlines here on WLIWFM. Uh, I want to thank our guests, Denise Civiletti from Red Local, Beth Young from the East End Beacon, and Brendan O'Reilly uh, from the Express News Group. Thank you guys for being with us. And thank you to my co-host, Bill Sutton. We will be back next weekend.